everybody and welcome to another E5 podcast. Well, it was an energetic start. My name is Paul Meenan. Thank you very much for listening or watching or whatever platform you're viewing or listening to. Um, and I'm here with the most beautiful, talented and competent tag team partners a man could wish for. Introduce yourself, lads. Hello, I'm JW. And it's David Watts here, Sparky Ninja. John, the wise ward. Mm. David, the ninja watts mm. there you go i still am just paul just paul i have no nickname or anything else very strange don't really know what i can do that's it um, well, i was i was sparky jedi on twitter which i loved but i don't mm. do twitter anymore so right today's going to be an interesting one because um we have done a webinar um because i'm assuming we've done the webinar yeah we've done the webinar i don't know yes, we've done the web- Let's yeah, cut this done, out. Well, the webinars this this may 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 or may not be this coming Tuesday when we're recording. It may this. or may not be when we're recording so, this. So, so we've um, done it by now. The, t- the time you're hearing this. By the time you're hearing this, we've done a webinar. There you go. And it was and this is slightly different because one of the things I've always said, and I think I've said it in previous ones, um, to find out where you are today, you must know where you've come from. Whether that be you on an emotional level, an intelligence level, a personality level, family history, etc. And in this electrical industry, we have many debates and there's many arguments and many impassioned. Where did this wives tale come from? And so we've been looking at the history of the wiring regulations for quite some time. And before COVID, I was doing some IET lectures for them for EngTech and stuff. And to try and be different, I used to think, well, what can I look at that's different? And I managed to get hold of a copy of the original first edition of the wine regulations, um, which was actually readable, which was great. One of the good things about being an IIT volunteer, you can get obtain these sorts of things. And so what we thought we'd do is we'd take you through this document and how actually it hasn't changed that much. So, um, yeah. Well, that's what we're going to do. We'll take you through the history of the wine rigs, but we're going to concentrate in this podcast just on the very first edition. John, do you have any statistics for us when it comes to the wine regulations? Yeah, certainly do. Now, obviously, we're on the 18th edition at the moment, but that doesn't mean there's been 18 in the whole history of ever, because as anyone who's bought these things will know, particular edition gets revised and there's an amendment one and amendment two and whatever. And before that, there were various revisions and supplements and all kinds of other bother. So since the very first edition in 1882, the number of actual books that's been published is actually 49. So that's quite a lot. Without without going too much onto a tangent, what is it that makes them change the edition at the time? Is is there a limit on how many amendments they can make to an edition before they have to make it a next edition? Yes. There is. Was, wasn't there? Yeah. there is. So in BS0, which is the most original name ever, yeah. there is guidance in there that talks about a standard can be revised twice before right. it is then required to be an entirely new standard. However, you can do a third amendment, but you right. will just tell the BSI that you're doing a third amendment because it may not be sufficient change to mm. warrant a full revision. So when you go to the when we go to the 19th edition, the Wine Regs Committee will be expected to do a complete revision, complete review of the entire content of that standard for the 19th edition. Obviously, you're referring there to BSO, which is yeah. fairly modern, but that kind of um, attitude or behaviour has probably gone back in time, really, when we well, went from the 12th to the 13th, or was it maybe due to engineering changes? Or well. Well, glad you say that, actually. So, um, John, if you've got anything you want to add in here before I go off on my little history, please yeah, do. Yeah, the, um, basically prior to about the 17th, it was sort of any old thing goes, really. Because, <laughs> um, I mean, the 16th edition was a right mess because the 16th edition actually had three different titles oh, wow. uh, because they changed it from the um, regulations for electric installations and it became BS 76719092 and then it also became BS 76712001 but it was all the 16th edition mm. and there was actually nine of those which is ridiculous well, well there were, I mean it had a long life the 16th edition yeah it? very long very long life and yeah. uh, the ones before that most of the ones it was basically say like say the 13th edition it was put out in I say 1955 
and then there were some minor corrections and then there were some amendments and then there were some more amendments and then there were some more so it was just whoever was writing it at the time just changed some stuff oh print a new book print a new book yeah. so it, it was actually worse then than it is now saying so that particular one and then you got a book published in 55 58 another one in 58 61 62 and 64 so that was some, after, some but some a couple of people were really really enjoying writing books at that time yeah right? So people complain today that oh, there's a new book coming out all the time. Well, it's actually only about every three or four years. Yeah. I mean, that in that 1950s, you were buying one every other year, basically. So the idea of it being revised too often is definitely not a new one. Okay. So let's get on with it. So let's give you a little bit of history. So in the very very beginning, and, and we've done a bit of research, and the earliest references to any sort of wiring rules and law. It's not 1882. You've got to go back in time further. 1847. So there was a, a, a an act, as they called them back then, of the Parliament. Uh, I'm sure they were probably all wearing wigs and stuff, called the Town Improvement Clauses Act. And it's commonly known as the Gas Act. Why? Because when, well, before electricity was a common thing, we used to light cities and towns with Gas. Gas. So it was an act for consolidating um, uh, paving, draining, cleaning, lighting and improving towns because, you know, they had to do something about the sewers that were right outside people's windows and, you know, having gas lights and explosions and all that good sort of stuff. So in 1847 was the first references to, you know, some sort of lighting or the future of where we were going to be with regards to acts and laws about keeping things in some sort of parliamentary act. But then in uh, on the 17th of May in 1871, fast forward a few years, this um, bloke called Sir Charles William Siemens, as we know Siemens, Siemens. now, who were massive. Um, he uh, was German-born, lived in English. He was an engineer and an inventor, and he worked a lot in the steel and telegraph industries. And he was actually the very first president of Society of Telegraph Engineers which then became the Society of Telegraph Engineers and Electricians, which then became the Institute of Electrical Engineers. And what is fascinating is you can go online and you can buy these books. And what happened was they had regular meetings and all the meetings, they would present white papers and theories. And there is right. actually one online where somebody talks about electrical earthing in relation to the electromagnetic field of the earth. And there is also stuff, and I think we've put snippets on our Instagram account, where the very first lightning protection system was a bloke with cast iron gutters that extended up past his house to help the smell go away. It got hit and managed to carry the lightning down. And it was recommended that this cast iron gutter was maybe used as a method of protecting buildings in remote areas from lightning. So this is all the way back in you know the 1870s odd. So Sir Charles William Siemens, obviously, he decided to do some uh, experimenting in a place, and I'll never get this name right, in uh, Gold Aming in Surrey in, in 1881, basically it became the very first town in the world to have a public electricity supply. OK, um, and basically he put in this Siemens AC alternator and dynamo. We know dynamos nowadays as motors, generators. But in them days, it was a dynamo, not the magician, uh, just a dynamo motor, um, which were powered by water wheels. Um, so he built this basically motor next to the waterway he run a number of supply cables that were laid in gutters madness um and he put in 34 incandescent lights um but in 1881 floods caused loads of problems um there was loads of issues with it and eventually in 1884 the whole town said poke your electric lights we're going back to gas but that was a very very first trials of electricity mm. in what we now know is the norm and i guess so, at the time at the time when they probably moved from gas to electricity the users locally didn't probably see a huge significance with regards to the light levels oh it's achieved by gas to electricity magic. Yeah. it's magic and they probably and just saw all these cables shorting out critical. well you think about in the homes them days they were used to the flame their mm. eyes were used to the flame of their fires and the lights outside you've now gone with this bright bright intense electricity electricity mm. oh no we don't like that we can put the gas lighting around out of a, a job. Big, a big i mean it's just an incandescence probably a big contrast of light though probably 
Yeah, more than like obviously I weren't alive in them days, but yes, there's no color photos and the photo quality isn't great. But yeah, so in in 1872 he became the very first president of the IET. So it's it's very relevant. Um, but in 1875, um, that gas act, as we as we remember, we spoke about earlier on, uh-huh. um, became the Public Health Act. And the Public Health Act was designed to properly start cleaning up towns because they were just foul, horrible, stinky, nasty places to live. You're introducing gas, you're introducing electricity. Uh, I'm sure there was mass murders and killings going on from people not installing this stuff correctly. And then eventually in 1882, what we now know as the Electricity at Work regulations or not the Electricity at Work regulations, the ESQCR. So the Electricity Supply Quality Continuity Regulations. In 1882, the Electric Lighting Clauses Act came out because they had all these magical electric lights. There had to be some sort of act of parliament that controlled and, you know, managed it in some form and made sure it was safe. This actually went on to become the electricity supply regulations amended Mm. many times. And then in 2002, if I remember rightly, it became the ESQCR when it all got, you know, it just all went downhill really from there, I think. Again, this is all way before any kind of grid idea and all that stuff at the time. Uh, It was always local generation. And and we've, me and John have looked at books where, You've got adverts for very rich, well-to-do people who were encouraged to have dynamos in their home mm. and wiring for those rich elitists, obviously, which we don't fall into. But um, that's what happened. Anyway, yeah, very much. Uh, if you were rich, you've had your own personal private generating equipment and your own personal stuff. And then you could light up your house and say boo to all your neighbours. So. Now, hang, hang on a minute, chaps. Isn't that what we're heading to now with prosumers? <clears throat> We yes, may be again. Yeah. We may be in twenty twenty five years time in that position where a certain time of night, some people are still lit up because they've got the storage on board or the generation capacity, while some of us may not yet. So you know, years ago, years ago, um, in the eighteen seventies, you had dynamos, motors generating and using water from rivers and stuff to generate electricity to run public lighting. Two thousand and twenty one, we have solar on the roof, generating power to a battery storage. Similar principle, just no moving parts. Mm-hmm. So we haven't really changed in, in hundreds of years. But let's move on a bit. 1880, the Society of Telegraph Engineers and of Electricians was formed. So the Telegraph Engineers finally realised they couldn't do it without sparks. And in the general meeting of the Society of Telegraph Engineers, 22nd December, it was decided to alter the title to reflect changes in electrical technology. And it was renamed Society of Telegraph Engineers and Electricians. Then in 1887, a motion was put forward. And you can read all of these if you go online and find the books with the papers in it to alter the name to the Institute of Electrical Engineers to represent the body of electrical engineers in England. And then in 1889, the Joint Register of Stock Companies issued a certificate to incorporate the IEE. May 11th, 1882 is a date that a lot of electricians may want to remember. In fact, if anything, May 11th should be uh, the annual Sparks Day. Why? Because on May 11th, the rules and regulations for the prevention of fire risks arising from electric lighting came about. So we went from that Public Lighting Act into a more detailed set of guidance specific for the installers. We know it is the first edition. And what I've always found fascinating about this is the title, because it says rules and regulations. Yeah. Is there a massive difference? But more importantly, prevention of fire risk from electric. 2021, we're still not getting it right. Hmm. Because we still have electric fires. So it was made up of 21 regulations. Um, basically, it was a little A5 foldable thing or an A4 sheet that you just folded up. And these were handed out when people would turn up to the Society of Telegraph Engineers and Electricians. These were handed out as printed papers. This is how they got them. Luckily, some have survived and they've been scanned. Um, but it was 21 regulations and divided into four parts. OK, so we're going to go through those four parts. But before we do, um dave do you want to just take us through the the preamble of in the beginning um there's a little bit of narrative like an introduction that we have nowadays 
Okay, it's got here in beginning. These rules and regulations are drawn up not only for the guidance and instruction of those who have electric lighting apparatus installed on their premises, but for the reduction to a minimum of those risks of fire, which are inherent to every system of artificial illumination. Interesting mm. though, isn't it? 1882, mm. guidance, instruction, very clear defined rules and regulations to risk of fire and artificial illumination because it was an early technology, quite high risk of fire. Um, it, then, it then obviously goes on to say about the chief dangers of every new application of electricity, and I love this, are from ignorance and inexperience on the part of those who supply and fit the plant. So the first edition that's, that's great wording, open, openly says the danger is you may be basically ignorant and incompetent. Now, it doesn't say that. This is inexperience, but inexperience could be defined as a lack of competency. Oh, yeah. Of the installer. That's that's mind blowing stuff, chaps. It really is when you think about it. First edition warns of incompetence. The current edition doesn't really reference competence much other than for testing. You're now skilled or instructed. And it still it still doesn't touch too much on the actual ability for you to uh, again, you know, be ignorant with that. You know, doesn't really in any way assume that of you. Yeah, what with where we define say? competency today, John. What else does it say? Mm. Right, we've got the the difficulties that beset the electrical engineer are chiefly internal and invisible, and they can only be effectually guarded against by testing or probing with electric currents. They depend chiefly on leakage, undue resistance in the conductor, and bad joints, which lead to waste of energy and the production of heat. Hang on a minute. Hang on a minute, John. What you've just told me before we've even got into a regulation, we're talking about testing using probes. We're talking about earth leakage. And by the way, some electricians in 2021 are just coming to the concept of earth leakage. And we're talking about leakage in 1882. I also, love, I also love the mention of the waste of energy in there. Energy efficiency? In 1882? To consider the ability to abuse and waste energy back then. 1882, guys. Um, it's fascinating because, uh, and the reason why we're doing this as well, it's worth noting, is sometimes people go, well, the old regs are the old regs. Not necessarily, because a lot of people go, well, that was to a previous edition and the previous editions were substandard. This is the first edition and it's still relevant today, if anything, more relevant. So it also talks about... Uh, the defects that can appear in any electrical installation can be detected by measuring by means of a special apparatus. Yeah, the currents that are either ordinarily um, that are either ordinarily or for the purpose of testing. So we would inject currents mm -hmm. in the old days. We don't do that anymore in the same context of what they did years ago, but we still test. Which we Pass did. through the circuit. Bare or exposed conductors should always be within visual inspection. Oh, my God, inspection. It talks about inspection. Since the accidental falling onto or the thoughtless placing of other conducting bodies upon such conductors might lead to short circuit in or the sudden generation of heat to a powerful current of electricity in conductors too small to carry it. My mind is blown. See, thoughtless placing of other conducting bodies is, again, such a good way to kind of describe it you know but, but they did they would run bare conductors on, on porcelain pots and it was yeah. very crude and rudimentary in them days but i like the fact that it talks about inspection it talks about testing um accidental falling on it external influences consideration of short circuits and the <laughs> heat generated by them let me just quickly jump out of this a moment Go on. all right if i'm listening to this right i've got my mft i've got my Battery powered, I don't know, QTEC mega flute. What would they have had back then? What we oh. about, you know, what instrumentation? Because it says the tests. You know, this is something I want to I want to look at next. I mean, I think we know the wind up and the dynamos and stuff were used, but how far back do they go? I do have a book. Yeah, it was published in, I think it was eighteen nineties. It's American, but it does. It's a whole book on inspection and testing and wiring in America. 
which is quite interesting. Um, I'll have to read it. It'd be really, really interesting to see what kind of instrumentation they still had back then. Instrumentation is not new. No, no, none of it is. Um, it's just I love I love the narrative that they use in yeah. this. But we'll, we'll we'll move on as well because it then then says um, it cannot be sh too strongly urged that amongst the chief enemies to be guarded are the presence of moisture. Hello, external influences. Where have you been all my life? And the use of earth as part of the circuit. What an amazing way of this saying is, earth is the enemy of the line and neutral conductor. This is just the way they worded things back then. And they have fantastic fonts with these kind of things as well. And all the warning notices. We've seen chief danger used. Now we're seeing chief enemies used. Yep. Um, but also, the, and I love this, is, and it, this is just the opening narrative, the preamble to the regulations. It says the chief element of safety is the employment of skilled and experienced electricians to supervise the work. Mind blown. Skilled and experienced. It's like we've just gone back to that now, because we're really now talking about persons who are skilled, relevant to the nature of the work to prevent danger right now. Yeah, it's, it's the closest our definitions have been to the original ones. Yep, and it is in there, by the way. We've not just made that up. It is in the first edition just before we get to part one on the dynamo. Um, so obviously dynamos, big, huge, clunky motors, generators. So I'm going to take you through them. Now, I want you guys to say what load of rubbish and what we'll do is we'll swap them around. So let me go first. Regulation one of the first edition. The dynamo machine or motor generator yeah. should be fixed in a dry place. Yeah. Is that relevant to today? Mm, yeah. External influences? Yeah. IP ratings? <clears throat> Come a long way, baby. But yeah, but how, how do we define a dry place today? There'd probably be a guidance note just on that, to be honest with you. Yeah. Lacking the presence of certain would amount of moisture. Would we not overcomplicate that? I think we probably could. Yeah. But let me take you on that journey because we're not feeling confident and warm and fluffy. It's very common sense. So rule two of the first edition, it should not be exposed to dust or flyings. Flyings. And I don't know what flyings is. I'm assuming that's just that's some kind of debris of machinery or bits something. Bits of debris, Swarm yeah. So this is about protection of the dynamo machine, the motor, the generator. It should not be exposed to dust. So basically, put it somewhere where you're not got flour stored and moisture and all that sort of good stuff. Keep it clean, keep it safe, keep it tidy. Very relevant to today's external influences. And that's just one line. Um, the next one, it should be kept perfectly clean, David and John, perfectly clean, and its bearings well oiled. So you've got to service the machine and keep it clean. Perfectly I mean, come clean. on. Perfectly clean. Perfectly clean, dear boy. What, 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 what? Um, number four, it, the ins and this is the first reference to insulation as well. The insulation of its coils and conductors should be perfect. Perfect. So this is this is painting a picture of a quality install, nice and safe, considering the external influences. This is it's, relevant to today's stuff. But it's indirectly it's indirectly forcing better workmanship than what we have today. Yes, because they is so is, much about knowledge, but not the actual produced output. So if Mr. Skirn was here, he would talk to you about now that the current regulations and current standards landscape is output based. Mm. It's very much um, not prescriptive, but output based. So rather than say you will, you shall, you must, it will kind of fluffily talk around the performance or the output requirement, which I think is where standards have gone so downhill. And that was purely cost cutting type exercise yeah but we're going to regulation five it is better when practicable to fix it on an insulating bed okay so this is the motor put it on an right. insulating bed we have the word practicable it's the first time i've heard this now what do you think practicable would have been considered as back then i have a really weird feeling that it, given the way law is it's probably the same thing yeah. if it's possible to do it do it so yeah. what would what would uh what, would, what so it'd just be again a case of risk or cost well i don't think then them days you'd just be rich i think it's <laughs> if the floor conditions allow it okay i would i would assume that as 
Moving on, all conductors in the dynamo room or motor room um, should be firmly supported. Oh, my God. Well insulated, conveniently arranged for inspection and marked or numbered. So regulation six of the first edition is better than most parts of 7671. Because let's be honest about it. If you put that in the current regs and said all conductors should be firmly supported, tick, premature collapse, well insulated, yeah, double insulated or whatever you need, depending on the installation. Conveniently arranged, not lashed in like some sort of children's shoe drawer where everything's all knotted together. Mm -hmm. And arranged for inspection and marked and numbered. Hello, you've got a lovely installation. I would love, I would love to take some time somewhere, look, look for history as to what was meant by conveniently arranged. To see what they if I, if I can if that is what it sounds like you know just make sure that they're all well ordered and nothing's crossing over nothing's confusing which we see so much today I'd love to try and get that put back in. John, way. what's your what's your thoughts on conveniently arranged? I've got certain books with pictures of stuff in, and it's literally perfect in every, perfect. every way. So you've got like a great <laughs> load of conductors come down, and they're all exactly in line. And if, yeah. if there's a bend in them, all the conductors all got the same bend in each one, and Huge amount of skill went into that. So conveniently arranged is nice. now, in modern times, a well-dressed board. Yeah. That's about as good as it gets. When it goes into a bit of 6x6 trunking, all bets are off, because mm. uh, that takes way too much time. But the one thing I do like is when the data, data installers, you know when they get a bit of ply and they drill holes, and then they'll put, they'll do a comb, a cable comb on the Cat uh -huh. 6s. That, to me, is conveniently arranged, where they're dressing it in so that nothing crosses over and it, that that to me is conveniently yeah. arranged. Fundamentally, for me, conveniently arranged would mean that if you're going to do some inspection work or some modifications or some work beside it, it's easy to work with, easy to identify cables, easy to identify the runs. Um, that, that you know, what we don't really have anything in seven six seven one that really we can highlight for that, other than just workmanship. Yeah, I agree. So moving on, we, yeah. so regulation six is now officially my favourite reg of the like first that. edition but let's move to number seven because we're nearly through them amazingly um every switch or commutator used for turning the current on or off should be constructed so when it is moved and left to itself it cannot permit of a permanent arc or of heating and its stand should be made of slate stoneware or an incombustible substance so this is Probably the first reference to isolation, but mm -hmm. under two different guises. Isolation from the building fabric, which is 421, 422, you know, thermal effects of heating other parts of the building, which we did in our um, thatch building um, podcast. But also the first references to when you're disconnecting and separating the conductors, try no, and make sure you don't have an arc. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a double reference for isolation. Which is mind blowing. 1882, everybody. It works, though, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. um, there should be, in connection with the main circuit, this is regulation eight, a safety fuse constructed of easily fusible metal, which would be melted if the current attained any undue magnitude and would thus cause the circuit to be broken. So that's a really complex way of saying stick a fuse in it with something inside that will just pop. Yeah, put a weak link in to stop the cable melting. So, so John, nine. regulation nine, go for it. Yeah, number nine is every part of the circuit should uh, be so determined that the gauge of wire to be used is properly proportioned to the currents it will have to carry and changes of circuit from a larger to a smaller conductor should be sufficiently protected with suitable safety fuses so that no portion of the conductor should ever be allowed to attain a temperature exceeding 150 degrees Fahrenheit. Fahrenheit. Yeah. What's that in degrees? It's uh, not far hard. off. It's 66 cool. degrees Celsius or centigrade. Yeah. Oh, that's not so too far off then. Pretty near <clears> 70, yeah. Yeah, OK, there you go. So there's another challenge. Why is that change? Well, probably technology and understanding of it. But there's a note, John, on that as well, isn't there? Little NB note that they've put after the regulation. Yeah, we've got these fuses are of the very essence of safety. They should always be enclosed in incombustible cases. Even if wires become perceptibly warmed by the ordinary current, 
it is a proof that they are too small for the work they have to do and that they ought to be replaced by larger wires. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> stop, stop, time out. Hang on a minute, hang on a minute. Whoa, 1882, enclosed in incombustible cases. Wasn't there this huge hoo-ha when Amendment 3 came out about metal fuse boards? But yeah, in 1882, incombustible. Hello? And it was yeah. probably a special. What's the problem back then? Yeah. Well, it evidently was. Um, but what I find amazing is even when you go to a manufacturer, say my circuit breakers are getting warm, Dave, grouping, thermal dissipation. Oh. Um, this says it is proof that they are too small for the work they have to do. Hmm. There's one for your thermography, Mr. Watts. Ken, is there anything in 7671 that talks about the actual thermal temperatures of the conduct of the protected devices? No, but there was in 1882. Because we've said we've said so much about the fact that it's all about electric shock and not about thermal. Yeah. You know, yeah, it, it's madness, isn't it? Most of what's in there now is just obsessed with the conductors, yeah. not, the, not the things on the ends of them. Not the device temperatures. Well, because the manufacturers don't want you talking about their devices. Yeah. Well, no, because then it shows you their, their weaknesses when you when you have them under those higher temperatures. Anyone can make a fuse wire. It takes a, <laughs> another kind of man to make an MCB or an LCBO. Uh, and... Right. Do you want me to read number 10? Yeah, go for it. All right. So. Rule number 10, under ordinary circumstances, complete metallic circuits should be used and the employment of gas or water pipes as conductors for the purpose of completing the circuit should be in no case allowed. So basically what that tells me is some, some fool at some point would probably run a wire, connect it onto a water pipe and mm. then pick it up somewhere else, which probably killed God knows how many plumbers in 1882 yeah but some houses today may have that simplicity Mate, for their neutrals the fact that yes. they <laughs> the Sorry. fact that they put this in the first edition you know somebody's died from this sort of experimentation yeah. and if you do get the old books which are available on amazon and ebay and stuff where they put all the notes in a big thick book you can read some of the humor and of how they would willingly experiment on various things to understand electricity um but yeah that's that's a weird one anyway carry on sorry dave all right number 11 where a bare wire out of doors rests on insulating supports it should be coated with insulating material such as india rubber tape or tube for at least two feet on each side of the support that's interesting so it allowed you to run bare conductors but where it came into a, a basically these were like porcelain pots yeah that you'd tie the cables to and they'd sit off of the building material. And what they're basically saying is, is two for, for two feet either side, insulate it. Now we wouldn't dare do that. I guess that's, that must be a consideration of arm's reach to the person going there. Yeah. Would it be? Or would, it be would there be a thermal reason? Yeah, it's no. going to be partly, it's probably for, say, reaching it. And also things like if it, if it rains, you're not going to have tracking between the uh, wires and the whatever it's attached to on the insulator. Right. Well, we'll go on to 12 and 30. We're nearly there. Um, bare wires passing over the tops of houses should never be less than seven feet clear of any part of the roof, and they should invariably be high enough when crossing thoroughfares to allow fire escapes to pass under them. Now, I know for a fact I've seen buildings where they're TT and they are literally sagging across roofs. Mm. This is in 1882. They didn't want bare wires doing it. But what the DNOs now do, where they find that, they get like these plastic sleeves that they put over the wires just to prevent any arcing incidents. Yeah. yeah. And then when they've been up there for 10 years, they go brittle in the sun and crumble and fall off. So. You say they're not good for long life in, in the <laughs> no, sun. I'm suggesting they? that these aren't under a rigorous inspection and maintenance regime, John. Mm. Uh. <laughs> of course they're not. Anyway, sorry, apologies. On the next one, number 13. So it is essential, and this is one that, this is one of the brilliant ones as well. Um, it is essential that the joints should be electrically and mechanically perfect. I love this word, perfect. Perfect is beautiful. One of the best joints is shown in the annex sketch. So they actually put a drawing in the first edition. Um, the joint is whipped around with small wire and the whole mechanically united by solder. So you basically twist everything around and then you coat it in solder that's deemed a electrically mechanically perfect joint 
It'd be great if the 7671 actually showed how to do crimps and terminations and all that sort of good stuff. Wouldn't it be great if they did that? Just an yeah. idea. Yeah. Might educate people a bit more. John, number 14. The position of wires when underground should be efficiently indicated and they should be laid down so as to be easily inspected and repaired. And this is more than likely going to be putting it in ducting and having access covers in appropriate places, not just getting your cable and slinging it in the ground and covering it up. <laughs> and efficiently indicated, so you're going to have markers, probably terracotta posts, little indicator things that, to show where the cables are. But that's it. I mean, they're talking about indicating it for ease of inspection right at the very beginning. Yeah. 1882. Do you know how over the years, how many people I've seen argue over what's the depth you need to bury a cable um, and mm. I just think this is a better regulation. The position when underground should be efficiently indicated. They should be laid down so as to be easily inspected and repaired. Not probably practical anymore, but I do like, I'd love them to slip perfect. The depth should be perfect. The cable should be suitable and perfect for mm -hmm. being buried. That would be nice. But 1882, you know, these regulations were, again, all common sense, great rules, great instruction. Um, 15, John? Yeah, all wires used for indoor purposes should be efficiently insulated. Okay, now look, by saying efficiently insulated, does that not hand over some responsibility to the person to actually determine what efficient means? Wait you a know? minute, wait a minute. Are we having an argument over the first edition of the wiring rigs here? No, I'm just saying that that wording, if we had that wording today, that puts an awful lot of extra work on the electrician to understand what they're doing. Instead of this doing the minimum or well, I think selecting, that's just... selecting a cable that, you know, that, that we have available. Dave, I love that word. You could look at that and think that's chucking a load of loft insulation over it. Although it probably catch fire very, very quickly um, because you've misinterpreted another regulation earlier on that we just mentioned. Um, but no, yeah, I think that is just basically efficiently insulated is what it is. I think it's just don't don't be a twat and actually insulate the cables properly um and obviously don't lay building fabric and all that sort of stuff okay yeah. 16. 16 okay right when these wires pass through roofs floors walls or partitions or where they cross or are liable to touch metallic masses like iron girders or pipes they should be thoroughly protected from abrasion with each other or with metallic masses by suitable additional coverings and where they are liable to abrasion from any cause or the depredations of rats or mice, they should be efficiently encased in some hard material. Position of wires and underground should be efficiently indicated and they should be laid down so as to be easily inspected and repaired. Well, I think we should just pack up and stop now because um, uh, we how many arguments, how many rows, how many f bits of feedback I get slated for putting conduit over my twin and earth cables in the walls yeah okay um thoroughly protected from abrasion by what bricks yes passing through the wall where the wall can you know subside and crack and damage the cable yes john didn't we talk about rats and mice living in lofts yeah absolutely so this covers thatched buildings which in 1882 would have been frigging everywhere um, they should be encased in some hard material. Yeah, put it in conduit. Everything in houses. Anyone who's worked doing house bashing, if you've come into London or Sheffield, whatever, you'll lift up boards in some old granny's house and there'll be this beautiful imperial black conduit wall junction boxes where they've cut away the joists and it's a work of art under the floor and they've just chucked singles in. This, yeah. this is perfect. You don't get any depredation of rats or mice. They're efficiently encased in a hard material. Why don't we do it anymore? time time cost yeah yep. cost mostly so the it... workmanship stuff is just getting pumped out of the rigs other than a good workmanship material should be used why can't we put this because i would love to see in the regulations when you penetrate a wall you will sleeve it to protect the cable to protect the wall from any cracks or anything like that mm. why not yeah that's a thing that the american um regulations have a lot more of yeah, that's what we've got because really? the American one, well, the NEC, has a lot of stuff in like that, saying you will do this, you will do that, you will put outlets on a certain spacing, and <clears> this comes back to as like Paul said with um with Paul earlier, you know, you will, you know, you sh you it doesn't give you you shall, you will, you you know, 
in these yeah. in, in our book now. Performance based rather then, than whilst the states you do, you get so much more of those um, instructions. That's more of a rules book. America know? just got to throw that but in. Isn't it actually called the NEC rules? Isn't it? NEC rules. Yeah, I think it, it is, is. Yeah. Yeah. You know. So I love the fact that they can be easily inspected and repaired. How many times in 16 regulations have we mentioned the word inspected, tested, perfect? Perfect, yeah. Perfect. You can see why they have, people would hate this regulation now. But I, I see this as 1882, what is it, 136, 137 years old, all very relevant still to this day. Um, I'll, I'll take you on the next one. So the next one is a little, um, it's a regulation that says where wires are put out of sight. Oh, no, hang on. Yeah, there's put out of sight. They should be thoroughly protected from mechanical injury. It's interesting. Didn't I just mention we put steel conduits under the floor? And their position should be indicated. But then there's a note. And this note is brilliant. And it's my one of my favorite parts of it. It says, note, the value of frequently testing the wires cannot be too strongly urged. It is an operation. Skill in which is easily acquired and applied. Now, in them days, I don't think testing is an easily acquired. It's quite a bit of work to do. Um, but it, where were we? Sorry. Yes. Easily acquired and applied. Then it goes on to say the escape of electricity, the escape of electricity. What an amazing phrase. Cannot be detected by the sense of smell, as can gas. A little bit of a dig at the gas industry there. Um, but it can be detected by apparatus far more certain and delicate. Leakage not only means waste energy efficiency again but in the presence of moisture external influences it can it means destruction of the conductor and it's insulating coverage by electric action holy shit that note has covered inspection and testing skills uh, talks about gas how dangerous it is um leakage energy efficiency external influences in one note mm. Yeah, that's really. I, I like that a lot. It actually kind of stands stands up for it as well. I like yeah, the, little gas, the little gas poke. I do like that. I also like the fact. I mean, as you say, it's where wires are put out of sight. Yeah, you know, such was... as the flooring. I mean, we have so many cables buried. Even like cables buried in the wall today, where there's an assumption that the zonal pattern is sufficient. Um, but like we had on another previous podcast where we talked about the users expecting a level of service. If we need to start thinking about should we draw or put a schematic or a plan drawing of the cable routing in the walls for the life of the installation to protect the occupiers of a home? I don't know about you, John, you know? but when I was doing house bashing many, many years ago, I remember lifting up floors and the sparks would mark on the floorboards the routing. Mm -hmm. yeah. They would do that. Don't get any more. No, you don't get any more. No. But it's so easy to do, isn't it? Just get a pen pencil or whatever and steady wow. right how easy how easy with especially with like modern device phones just take some pictures and mark them and hand them to the customer or hand them to whoever you're handing the, the work with so they have evidence of where the wiring is yeah. yeah so many of these regulations are all about you know that we have these days with rcds and stuff pushing more and more because we have people we have carelessness by use and we have people penetrating the cable in the wall that's outside of a zone of some form yeah. if we pushed the need to actually document the wiring positions or we tightened up on the routing in some respect you know so they shall only go down or they shall only go up within a certain height or depth then the client gets better protection that way well let's go on to regulation 18 john okay arc lamps which was the main thing at the time should always be guarded by proper lanterns to prevent danger from falling incandescent pieces of carbon and from ascending sparks their globe should be protected with wire netting now this is interesting because i used to go for uh, to northern ireland every august when i was a kid for the whole month that's why i had my birthday and my granny lived in a little cottage and she had an old oil arc lamp and, mm. and it would light up the whole cottage. Well, when I say the whole cottage, the, the room it was in. But she never had to touch it. She would, you know, you'd pump it up, you'd light it and it would just burn. And eventually over time, little bits of carbon would fall. It was like a mesh and it would just fall down onto the, um, the wooden surface of the, the sideboard where it was and eventually just extinguish itself because it had just fallen apart. The heat had broke it down over time. 
And it's really interesting reading that one. But that's what happened in them days where you would get bits of the carbon and the, the, the filaments of the light just just breaking down from the heat and the overuse. And bulbs didn't used to last very long. So no. I just think that's a really interesting one because it, it kind of goes about protecting the building fabric and isolating the hot parts from the not hot parts of the... Well, yeah. And we have similar to that now. We have that with um, in Chapter 42 where luminaires may have control gear that heats up and can then be ejected from the fitting in a locate but we, we only put that in the locations with stored combustible materials or made of constructional combustible materials so we don't put that in general application john's now going to tell us the old equivalent of chapter 42 john 19. yep the lanterns and all parts which are to be handled should be insulated from the circuit so there's your class two equipment it's your class two so uh... there you go it's amazing isn't it 130 odd years old and it um yeah it's 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 not very different right i'm going to cover the last two um okay. so we've got the next one to secure persons from danger inside buildings it is essential so to arrange the conducts and fittings that no one can be exposed to the shocks of alternating currents exceeding 60 volts and that there should never be a difference of potential of more than 200 volts between any two points in the same room. I'd love to know where they got that from. I should, imagine, I should imagine the test data. I mean, the data we look at today is not as old as this, so maybe they had their own tapes. Mate, I could tell you now, there is, I've got a report which talks about deaths from electricity, and it says that deaths from electricity are nothing like the railways, which mm. is basically, and it calls the railways mass murderers for the amount of people they were killing in the early days of the railway. And it actually compares the electrical industry with we're murdering less people. So this is a good thing. <laughs> I think I'll put it on the inst our Instagram. I've got a screenshot and put it on Instagram. Um, last one, uh, in the difference, sorry, if the difference of potential within any house exceeds 200 volts, whether the source of electricity be external or internal, the house should be provided outside with a switch. So arranged that the supply of electricity can be at once cut off. Fireman switch anyone? Mm. I may nice layer. Mind blowing. Yeah. Is it? Yeah. So that's how you remove the potential. Yeah. yeah. I wonder where this two hundred volts came from. We have to look into that. Probably because the dynamos were only capable at that time well, of getting it. up to two hundred volts. Yeah. Um, yeah, it might be to do with the insulation types and things. It may have broke down, or say there was some. Person got killed and it was slightly more than 200, and they thought that was a dangerous level. We well, never mean, know. What you never could have gone on. I mean, saying that back then, the nominal voltage for the street lighting um, may have varied from one generator to the next. Well, they laid the street wiring gutters, so. Yeah, so God yeah. knows how those cables stood up to anything, but I'm not surprised the people in that Golderming said, no, do one, poke it, we'll yeah. go back to gas. But just imagine all these bad things happening and then obviously then most of these would have come out of some major disaster or people getting injured killed etc so yes yeah. and i'll be honest with you we could probably do five to ten hours of podcasts just on old white papers that were produced on experiments with electricity and all sorts of shenanigans but we're not going to i think it's fair to say that for a document published in 1882 there's a hell of a lot relevant still to this very day so um, if people say, where'd you get that rubbish from? You can actually quote the first edition of Iron Regs. There's nothing stopping you. Well, that's a good point, because so many people can look at the first regulations or rules and go, ah, well, that's, you know, that's, that's history, ancient history. But if you understand the current regulations and then you understand these, you can actually say it's been here for over 100 years. Yeah, absolutely. You know, this, this, fact... this methodology, this idea, this intent has always so, been here. I will tell you now, there was a court case that went on. Um, I spoke to someone at the IET about this. There was a court case that went on and involving an electrician, and the electrician went up and um, was arguing in his defence. And the judge at the time, I'm trying to remember this desperately, the judge at the time turned around and said, um, how long has this, this, what you're accused of, been in the wiring regulations? And the guy said, it's brand new. And the prosecutor said, no, actually, it was in the first edition of the wine rigs. It's always been a requirement, which is 136 years old. And, and that's the thing. The judge will listen to that and go, 
not new then. I mean, we've just spoke about generators in homes, but now everybody's going, oh, we've got to discover the prosumer. No, 136 years ago, we were prosuming. We were generating, we were consuming, we were doing it very badly and burning lots of house down and killing lots of people. But the principles of applying electrical energy and using it and directing it and channeling it and being mindful of it, it's amazing. It's this a lot relevant in there. Um, what are you guys' thoughts before we kind of wind down on this? I'd love to. I'd love to one day write my own book and squeeze as much of this as I can back in. You know, the, the terminology, the wording, perfect. perfect. You know, I'd love to try and push it back in because it has a place, I think. I agree. You know? I think it has a place. It's a great way of driving up the workmanship and the quality. You know, when we talk about raising standards, this you is know raising what? standards. If you were a professional electrician on the trade, trying to think ways that you can improve yourself, you could probably push that you work to the old principles of the original rules. And you can quote some of this stuff. I'll tell you, you what know. I'm going to do. And I'm, I'm going to write a railway standard, Dave. I'm going to write a railway standard. And in it, I'm going to use the word perfect. And in it, I'm going to quote the first edition of the wiring regulations where where practicable. So I it's a little bit educational. But John, what's your thoughts? Because you are a guru on past additional regs. Yeah, I mean, I've got a certain small collection, shall I say, of these. Small. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, this is obviously we just looked at the first edition here. But if you look at some of the others as well, it's amazing how much stuff is still in there that's been in there for like 50, 100 years or even more. Mm um and it's like people think all oh, this stuff has just come out recently but no it hasn't it's been there for most people's entire lifetime and it's just a question of uh reading it really mm. and if you look in there you see all this stuff that has either been in there forever or well, sadly a lot of stuff that was in there and is now disappeared and is no longer thought about but it's still relevant there you go right and on that bombshell this has been a more interesting one um Thank you very much, everybody, for watching. Thank you very much, everybody, for listening. Make sure you look after yourselves and each other. Stay safe, and thanks a lot. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.